I'm delighted to be here tonight in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee to continue our Origin Speaker series. I'm Spike Jurdy, the owner of Woodbury Kitchen here in Baltimore. This gathering is intended to advance the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and producers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish and shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that this community is doing in our area. The conversation is held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop, in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. So uh, it's great to see everybody again. How's everybody's summer been? Good? Yeah, happy fall, although it feels like summer today. So I'm Dana Slater, and I'm uh, the producer for Origins Speaker Series. We're coming into our, I think this is our 20th event. Um, doing this, and this is our kickoff for the fall event, so we're thrilled to welcome McKay Jenkins with us tonight, who is the author of Food Fight, um, and it's GMOs and the Future of the American Diet, and I wholeheartedly recommend, it's a great read, it's not too difficult, it's not very scientific, <laughs> very, very, he handles the, the topic very sort of equally, so I think, I think, uh, we're, we're offering the book afterwards for sale. Um, he'll autograph it for you if you want. It's $25. Um, and then your other book, Contamination, is also for sale out there as well. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what that's about as well. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you to all the farmers that are with us tonight. Um, actually, Drew and Joan Norman are mentioned in um, McKay's book. So you'll have to find that in the book. <laughs> so welcome to you. And Gretchen Dimling from Whistlepig Hollow and John from Karma Farm is here. So it's great to see so many farmers. Is there any other farmers here? Oh, Peter. Peter Elmore is here as well, new farmer. So that's great. Um, so I just wanted to uh, say a couple of thanks to the many people that make Origins tick. Um, huge shout out to Spike and his team for hosting this ongoing series and always being game to facilitate these conversations, so thank you. Um, thank you to Hannah Reagan, Lauren Pavin, the manager of Artifact and Burden Hand, her staff, Sean Noche, who's the floral studio from the floral studio, donates all the flowers um, for our events, Mary Romeo for maintaining and updating our Facebook page. Um, that is a good way to kind of follow us. It's called Origins, a speaker series. We don't have a website, um, so it's on Facebook, Origins, a speaker series for you newbies out there. Um, and Donnie Carlo, who's around the corner, um, is recording and engineering tonight's conversation. And again, for those of you that are new, um, we record the proceedings and um, everything is then uh, edited and then uploaded to Heritage Public Radio in Brooklyn, New York. It's a streaming radio station um, all about food. So all of our prior podcasts are, are available there if you want to tune in. Um, so when we talk, um, Spike and, and McKay will chat for a while, and then we'll open it up to questions and discussion. If you don't mind just waiting until I get over there with the mic, um, it helps for the recording side of this, and it makes the podcast sound a lot better. So thank you. Um, so. Um, Let's see, just wanted to make sure I said a couple things. Yeah, our next Origins uh, will be on Thursday, October 19th. 
and we'll take a look at the world of organic coffee through the eyes of Counterculture Coffee's East Africa Supply Chain Manager and their Sales and Exportation Manager for, I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, Manos Campesinas Co-op in Guatemala. Guatemala. Yeah. So that's <coughs> going to be really interesting. Unfortunately, I won't be here that evening, so you'll have to tell me all about it. I urge you to make your reservations early. I literally received 12 requests for tonight's tickets today. So I hate to say no to people, so please, please just reserve early. We do cut the PayPal off at a certain date, which I think affected some of you, and you contacted me as a result. So please just look for the sign up and, and sign up as early as you can. Um, so now I want to just introduce McKay, and thank you again for coming tonight. Um, you commute to, uh, to Delaware, to the University of Delaware, so I know it's been a long day. And, you said you've been talking about GMOs all day already. So, <laughs> so uh, McKay has been writing about people and the natural world for 30 years. His new book is called Food Fight, GMOs and the Future of the American Diet. He's also the author of Contamination, which chronicles his investigation into the myriad synthetic, synthetic chemicals we encounter in our daily lives and the growing body of evidence about the harm these chemicals do to our bodies and the environment. Uh, Jenkins is currently the Cornelius Tillman Professor of English, Journalism, and Environmental Humanities at the University of Delaware, where he has won the Excellence in Teaching Award. Um, we're delighted to uh, welcome McKay to our Oregon series tonight. So last thought, um, this is one of the things, when I first started out this series, um, I found this quote, and I, I think it's apropos of tonight. Um, it's a quote by a woman named Brenda Shop, I think is her name. It's, once in your life, you will meet a doctor, a lawyer, a policeman, and a preacher. But every day, three times a day, you'll need a farmer. Oh, wow. On that note, take it away, Spike. Wow. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, McKay. Thanks for being here. I guess not your first time to Artifact. One of the things I just learned is that uh, Food Fight was partially written here. Which I, I love. I love the idea. Not just here, but like in that table. Right. <laughs> Which I loved. I loved hearing that. And this this is a book I picked up at Burdenhead a few months ago, and I guess shortly after it came out, and it just really helped me understand. I think in a way that I hadn't previously. Um, GMOs, which is something, you know, that I approached. I think the way that a lot of folks approach it, which is, I kind of had ideas uh, somewhat vaguely formed, but but I think very passionately held ideas about GMOs. Um, they informed. I think in a way our approach at Woodbury a little bit in that I, I didn't want to work with uh, GMO uh, foods there and have ex excluded them, uh, I think, pretty successfully. Um, and it seems like a lot of people come to this conversation, you know, I'm just kind of being a little transparent here. Um, a lot of people come to this conversation with some fairly uh, strongly held beliefs, but not a lot of information. And you know, on one side, there, there are folks like me that are kind of deeply skeptical of GMOs and their role in our food system. The other, on the other side, I think there are people that are, are, are very firmly um, um, uh, hold firm beliefs that they're important, if not essential, for our, our need to, to feed you know, the, this growing population on this planet. Um, so how do, we, how do we have this conversation, I guess, is where I want to start. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a, it's a very complicated subject. <clears throat> and I started this out 
knowing that everybody I'd ever spoken to that had an opinion about GMOs had a very strong opinion, but what they actually knew about GMOs was really quite limited. Uh, and so I should let you know right up front that I'm not a farmer and I'm not a scientist. So you're looking at somebody who's a humanities person, a journalist. Uh, I teach environmental humanities. I've written a lot of stuff about this. So I tend to get at, um, I try to get as a, a complex picture as I can about what I consider to be complex issues because sometimes oversimplifying things really gives you the wrong idea. So at the risk of just taking like one second to give you some, my take on the background, like how this whole thing happened, just see if you can follow this, this reasoning for a second. This kind of forms one of the early chapters in the book. One of the things that people moan a lot about in this country is how ignorant people are about food. And there's a lot of blame about why that is, why people are, they know so little. I joke in the book that you ask even an educated undergraduate where potatoes come from, and they're likely to say they grow on trees. Now, one thing I tell my undergrads is it actually is literally not their fault that they don't know where potatoes come from. It is literally not their fault. They have never seen a potato in the ground. They've never seen a potato farmer. What they know of as a potato is something that is in a, you know, a sealed package with salt and vinegar or something. So the question is, where does the ignorance come from? My, my point is that GMOs is like a symptom of a much deeper structural phenomenon. So the way I think of this, and this is the way the book kind of begins, is that uh, after World War II, everybody knows that like petrochemical farm products, herbicides, fertilizers, all took off after World War II because the same companies that were making these war chemicals started making things that they then sold to farmers. We kind of know that story. But what people forget, I think, or at least I forgot, was that uh, the post-war demographic change in this country changed the landscape of North America in a more radical way than the human landscape has ever been changed. And but what I mean by that is after the war, you may, know, may not realize this, I certainly didn't realize this, but uh, we did not have an interstate highway system before World War II. And the reason we have an interstate highway system was initially as a, an effort at what we would now call homeland security. Like we had just seen what had happened in Europe and we'd seen the way Germans had moved troops and, and uh, weapons and tanks around on these big superhighways known as the Autobahn. So after the war, if you, think about, if you think about the way this developed in the 1950s and 1960s, we built this unbelievable system of super fast roads from 95 in the east all the way to I-5 in the west, and then 90, 80, all the way down to 10. Right? So now the United States has got a crisscrossing network of super highways. Right? So you know, you always hear this saga about how after the war, soldiers came back and they, they moved out to the suburbs. That's what you always hear. They moved out to Levittown, or they moved out to all these booming suburbs. That's actually not the first thing that happened. The first thing that happened is we built the roads. If we hadn't built the roads, we couldn't have built the, the houses. So we build the roads, and then suddenly all these people realize that they can live somewhere besides the city. For a long time in American history, just like in Europe, people either lived in the city or they lived on a farm. There were no suburbs. So suddenly, now this has all kinds of racial issues attached to it. There's like so much in this moment that basically defines American history of the last 20 or 100 years, let's say. So you build the roads and then suddenly all these people can say, hey, you know what? I can, dr I can drive out of the city and build a house and commute to the city, right? So then 
in the 60s and the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, depending on where you were in the country, starting in the northeast but progressing to the southeast and then the southwest, this city exploded with suburban development, right? We all know this. We've all kind of seen it, but we didn't really kind of articulate this thing. So now we've got all these ring roads, not just the highways like 95, but now we've got these rings around the cities. The beltway around DC, the beltway around Baltimore, the beltway around Philadelphia, the beltway around Atlanta. Wherever you are, there are big ring roads. What does that allow to happen? People can move out of the city and build a big house in the, in, in the country, is what they used to say. I'm going to build a house in the country. Well, you build enough houses in the country, now you've got a subdivision. Right? So far, so good. But so where were all those subdivisions built? They were built on top of farms. Right? You know the story, right? So like in the, in the what was it, like the 1870s, something like 54% of all Americans worked on a farm. 54%. Half of the country worked on a farm. Now, we have 300 million people, 2%. 2% work on farms. So just start there, right? So now we have all this housing built on top of what used to be farms, right? The joke was that farms don't grow food, they grow houses. That was true for the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. I lived, I was a newspaper reporter in Atlanta in the late 80s and 90s when the suburban Atlanta was the fastest growing human demographic change in the history of humanity, right? More people were moving out into the suburbs than anywhere ever, right? They were building hundreds of thousands of houses over those years. So Georgia, one more agricultural state that suddenly became a suburban state. So you think about what that does to the landscape, right? Now you got all these people in these big houses. They got to fill all their houses with stuff, which is the subject of my previous book. All this stuff also, by the way, is made out of petrochemicals, which is one of the reasons that we're dealing with a whole cancer thing, whatever. That's a whole other conversation. We got all these houses filled with stuff. But now we got all these houses built on what used to be farms. But people still got to eat. So where's the food going to come from? Well, the food, because of this, there's nowhere to grow food anymore around the cities. So the food disappears into the Midwest. If you're going to have all these population centers that can't feed themselves, the food goes to the Midwest, right? It moves west from the East Coast, and it moves east from the West Coast, and now it's all centered in the Midwest. Well, what do farms at large scale do really well? They can grow a lot of grain really cheap. Once you grow a lot of grain really cheap, then you've got to make a bunch of food out of that stuff. What can you make out of a lot of cheap grain? Well, you can grow a lot of really cheap meat, right? You feed the cows corn, and you can make a lot of cheap soda. You can make a lot of cheap processed food. But that's not the first thing that happened. That is the result of the stuff that I've just described. That all was a logical outcome of this massive change in the landscape. So to, for me to be here, like this is like, not to sound all gooey about it, but this is like the, the fantasy of the reconfiguring of all this stuff. We've got farmers in the room. We've got guys who run restaurants that care about farms and care about food. We've got consumers that care about this stuff. This is the way it has to, to shift. And you know, people call it a yuppie, foodie thing. All this actually is is like a return to what used to be, where people actually cared about food, knew the people who grew the food, knew the people that cooked the food. That's the way people have always eaten, except for the last 70 years. And that is the aberration, right? The last 70 years is the weird thing, not what's happening now. The thing that's happening now is, in a way, a return, I think. So that's, so the GMO thing is like one late stage in this whole conversation, but it's not the first thing or even really the most important thing. The re most important thing is like, how are we gonna feed ourselves and how are we gonna undo this unbelievable infrastructure shift that we've watched happen around us like without really having any
say over it. It's just this unbelievable. It's like hit hit the country like a meteor. The suburbanization thing just just wiped out farms as far as you can see. So you have this rapidly scaling agriculture and kind of consolidating in the middle part of the country. And recently, like, this has become, the GMO thing has become a part of that ag. And I think it would be really helpful for, for me and probably this group to understand what are we really talking about when we talk about GMOs. When I bring it up sometimes, people are like, well, we've been breeding plants and animals for thousands of years, and this isn't any different. And I think it is, but, you know, how would you define, you know, gen genetically modified, genetically engineered, you know, versus maybe traditional breeding, hybridization, things like that? Well, this is a really central question, and, and this is uh, an important thing to understand because as <coughs> scientists told me over and over and over again, whether they're pro or anti-GMO, they would say genetic and engineering, the term is always the same. They say it's a tool. It's a tool, and I think it actually is just a tool. If you just think about taking a plant and playing around with its genetics is just simply a technique. It's something that you can do, and you can make this or you can make that, right? This is where it gets funky, though, because the way that GMOs, regardless of what Monsanto says or DuPont Pioneer says about feeding the world, those big companies are not feeding the world. That is a, that is a, a, a generous way to say that that is, that is misleading, an ungenerous way to say that it's just like a bald lie. So they say they're feeding the world because it makes you feel better Let's put it this way. The term GMO has become so toxic for these companies that they need to try to reconfigure the public perception of the term. And the way they reconfigure the term is like they put this idea in your head that we need GMOs to feed some like vague collection of people in the developing world somewhere. That is not actually what they're doing. What they're doing is using genetic engineering to create massive scale industrial monocultures that are designed to withstand the chemical sprays that they originally started their businesses to create. So like when Monsanto, when Monsanto creates Roundup Ready seeds, part of the reason they do it is because they created Roundup and they gotta create markets for Roundup. When DuPont, right, a chemical company that started out as a, you know, a warfare chemical company, buys Pioneer, Right? and starts designing seed company. Seed, one of the biggest seed companies in the world. DuPont buys it. Why? Because they need new markets for their chemicals. So I don't want to sound too cynical, but that's actually part of what's going on, is that these are companies are looking for markets for the stuff that they already have. So you can create, so a GMO in the United States typically means creating a soybean or, or a, uh, like a, you know, a BT, it's either a soybean that resists Roundup or it's a BT corn that resists insects. And the idea is that you are gonna be able to facilitate and scale up industrial scale grain production so that you can then feed into the industrial food system and can continue to create the industrial products like lots and lots of high fructose corn syrup or lots and lots of feed for cattle, right? We eat something like 80 billion, that's a B, 80 billion animals a year in this country and they're almost all fed GMO corn and GMO soybeans. So the GMOs that as they're actually used in this country are used to scale up industrial food production. Okay, so the tool in this country is used that way. The tool in another country could be used for something else, like you could make a, uh, for example, this, the famous one is what they call golden rice. So you have a rice grain that is being marketed to people typically in Asia 
where they eat a lot of rice, but there's not a whole lot of nutrition, I'm sorry, there are not a lot of vitamins that are inherent in the grain. So you've got scientists that are figuring out, like, you know, there's all this pediatric blindness that is happening in Asian countries where they get a lot of rice, a lot of calories, but they don't get any vitamin A. So what if we could genetically alter the rice grain to put a beta-carotene producing gene inside the rice. So then if a kid, all he has to eat for lunch is a bowl of rice, at least he's getting vitamin A, right? Who could argue with that, right? Well, some of these company, some of these countries are so paranoid about the Monsantos of the world that they will not take the golden rice because they're like, I don't trust, you tell me this is gonna be good for me, I don't trust it. So even though they're creating grain, which seems like a great idea, the cultures are really resisting this. You've got other scientists that are creating beta-carotene-infused uh, cassava, cassava being a very important root vegetable in Africa, which otherwise has no beta-carotene. So that seems like, the, so there's the tool again. In this case, the tool is being used to add nutrients, excuse me, or you can make a grain that will survive in drought or that will survive in flooding, right? Those are, that's the tool used for different purposes maybe to support local agriculture, maybe super specified to a certain microclimate. That is a tool being used for different kinds of purposes. It's not the same thing. When you talk about GMOs, you have to say, like, what are we exactly talking about? Are we talking about Roundup-ready soybeans that are going to be you know, planted on 85 million acres in the United States to create soybean oil to you know, fry chicken McNuggets? Or are we creating drought-resistant grains that might, in a certain kind of climate or insect resistant grains that might in a certain kind of climate function to help actual people or actual farmers. Those are totally different uses of the tool. And the reason this book is like weirdly and aggravatingly uh, neutral is that one is, seems okay and one doesn't seem okay. Like, it really I, matters on the context. I, I, I didn't find it aggravating. I, I felt that it really did a great job of kind of giving the whole picture. And, you know, one of the interesting places where that happens is in Hawaii, where you kind of have, you know, you have the papaya that was essentially saved um, with Monsanto's help um, from, um, what was the disease? A virus, yeah. A virus. And then you have a lot of other really intense, maybe you could talk a little bit about what's happening in Hawaii and how that kind of is, is both sides of this in, in one very small area. Yeah, so one of the techniques that, that journalists often try to use is to try to find a really specific example of something that represents the much larger fight. So in this book, lucky for me, uh, I found that representative case in Hawaii. And there are three chapters in the middle of the book on three different islands, Kauai, Maui, and the Big Island. And on the Big Island, there's a great success story where, in fact, a Hawaiian-born plant geneticist was called in, he was at Cornell University, but he was called in to basically save the papaya industry because the papaya industry had been run down by this thing called uh, 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 ring spot virus. It was just, it was ruining the fruit on these, these papaya trees. So he came up and genetically, figured out how to genetically modify a papaya plant so that it would resist the virus. Now, one of the great things about being a journalist is you get to learn stuff that you never thought of before. It turns out that plants don't actually have an immune system the way human beings do. You can't like inoculate a plant, but you can actually, by monkeying around with the genes, you can make them, you know, build up their defenses against the virus. So he did this, he invented a, a, a GMO papaya. Now this is not, although Monsanto put some like research 
money through this nonprofit. He was a, a, a nonprofit university researcher. There's no money in Papaya for Monsanto. Like that's not, they're not gonna not enough. go there. It's not yeah. enough. So he, in other words, the best kind of research, in my opinion, that's being done on GMOs is being done by nonprofit university researchers to support local farmers, which is exactly what happened on the Big Island. Meanwhile, across the water in Kauai, one of the most beautiful places you will ever go, uh, you think of Kauai and you think of surfers, right? You think of this, as I say in the book, it looks like it's like an island with Machu Picchu right in the middle of it. You know, it's like you can't believe how pretty it is. Uh, a lot of these big, I'm talking about Monsanto and Dow and DuPont and Syngenta, all the big players are there, and they are all doing what they call experimental farms. That's the term, the experimental farms. And, uh, but Kauai is also a place where actual human beings live. So you have this very tense relationship where you've got people that live on the island, and you've got these mysterious experimental farms off somewhere doing something. And the people start to hear whispers that, um, that they're using quite a lot of, this is where they're scaling up the seeds, right? They'll, they'll be experimenting on a new seed, they'll plant it, they'll spray the hell out of the ground and they'll see what happens. And they do this over and over. Hawaii has a growing season that is sometimes three and sometimes even four full cycles in a calendar year, right? It is perfect farm climate, which is one of the reasons the companies are there because they can work, you know, plants really heavily. So they spray and they spray and they spray and they spray and they spray. And then some local people are like, so what's going on back there in that experimental farm that we can't see and aren't allowed to visit? And the companies say, we're not gonna tell you anything. And the people get more and more frustrated and they go to their elected officials and say, would you please go ask those companies what they're spraying, when, how often, in what kind of toxicity levels? And the, you know, the county commissioner, who's the highest elected guy in the county, goes over and says, hey, uh, would you please tell us what's going on? And they say, no, no. And so the people, being people in a demo, you know, nominal democracy, say, well, all right, you, know, you say no to us, you say no to the elected officials, well, we're gonna have a referendum and we're gonna vote. We're gonna try to pass a law that's gonna force you to tell us. Now think about this. So there, are, I, I was there, right? So there are fields next to towns and schools. They spray the farms. I, was, I took photographs of the plume of dust. You know, the trade winds in Hawaii blow 20 miles an hour year round, right? So you, you spray the ground, a plume of red dust, which I could see six miles away. It's like 150 feet up in the air. This is a big plume of dust. It's blowing straight into the town. And I was talking to these people in the town. I was like, so what, what you know, does this bother you? And like, we have tested the dust on our windowsill and you can find these chemicals that they're using on the, but they won't tell us what they are or when they spray them, or how often, or in what kinds of concentrations. So they say, all right, you know what, if you guys aren't gonna tell us anything, we're gonna do the old American thing and like hold a democratic process and force you to tell us. We're gonna pass a law. So they start working around, working the networks. They get a law before, the, or a bill before the county council. And lo and behold, they pass this bill that says you have to tell us. Not, we're not kicking you out, just tell us what you're spraying. They pass the bill. And the companies say, no. They say, you don't, you can, the, the island is a county. The island itself is a, is a political unit. You don't have the jurisdiction or the authority to tell us what to do because the people that control pesticides is either the state or it's the EPA. So no, and we're gonna appeal this to the federal courts, which they did, and then the federal courts 
being the federal courts, supported the companies. So the people, now I think, just think about this by comparison. It's literally like Baltimore County passing a law that says you have to tell us what you're spraying. And the companies, if there were big old chemical companies here, saying no. And in fact, the EPA will come to our support and say, screw you to the county. So that's what happened in Kauai. Right after this, the same thing happens in Maui, right? Which you also thought of as like this, either a source of surfing or a source of great marijuana, depending on your relationship to Maui. You know, so this is just internet radio, I can see. <laughs> so uh, Maui says, you know what? Forget the chemical, uh, just the pesticides. We're going to ban these companies. We're going to kick the companies off. We're going to pass a law that says no more big GMO ag companies on this island. Imagine that. Kick them off the island. So the companies, because this has just happened in Kauai, get all freaked out. They're like, so this is where like the PR thing starts to come into play. Like if the, if the term GMO starts getting a bad enough rep, then no one is going to want to touch them. So in Maui, right, a county, a small county, Monsanto and Dow put $6 million into a county referendum. Now think about that. Think about, think about if companies came into Baltimore County and put $6 million into a county referendum. That, this is the most expensive county referendum in, uh, in the state's history. To fight this bill, which people were going door to door and knocking on doors trying to get this thing passed. They put $6 million bucks. They bought all the radio time. These activists could not even buy radio time because the companies had bought it all. And lo and behold, the people won. Again, the people went door to door. They knocked on all these things. They got all these like indigenous farmers going out, doing all these big public events. And the vote came, and the people won. They passed the county law that says these companies are no longer welcome here. Companies appealed to the federal court, and the federal courts are inevitably going to side with the companies again. So. You realize, you, like, you scratch the surface of the GMO thing, and suddenly you open up big old cans of worms of land use, politics, federal versus state, federal versus local. I mean, this thing is not simple. And the, the, the thing about it is, and where I got to with this book, and where I am now, I think, better informed, A, but also I understand that the GMO conversation, there, there's, a, there's a lot more to that as a tool than I think a lot of us realize. But at the end of the day, the way it's used in large-scale monoculture ag in this, here in this country and, and elsewhere, it's part of this terrible, huge system that is chemical dependent, chemical intensive in ways that are only getting worse. And that's, I think that's how I've come to understand the role of GMOs in our, yes, it can solve and may continue to solve certain specific issues with like the papaya, um, like cassava, um, if resources will be devoted to that. But the reality is that that's not why Monsanto Etc. are into this. They're into it because it's part of our large-scale agriculture as it's practiced now and will continue to be practiced, I think, for the foreseeable future. That's, right? That's totally it. That's and so totally to connect it. those two is really important in the GMO conversation. Right. I think it's, it's, it's not as effective to be, excuse me, anti-GMO as it is to be anti-industrial food in which the GMO thing plays a part. So not only are the GMO grains being used to, f to fatten up Americans on bad food, but also if you actually look at the data about the way that GMOs are used globally, the, the food that, the GMO foods that we export, when they, you hear this whole cliche about using GMOs to feed the world, the world that we're feeding with GMOs is like Canada. <laughs> you know, we are, because 
first of all, you know that Europe is like almost 100% anti-GMO. Now, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that goes back to the thing I was saying earlier. Europe never suburbanized. This is a really weird thing to actually experience for yourself. Go into Rome or Lyon or Paris or someplace and stand on a tall building and you can see farms, right? Europe never suburbanized. Now, this may seem like a simple thing, but if you have a city surrounded by farms, it's a very different thing than a city surrounded by 30 miles of suburbs. It means that Rome, when they want new, you know, a new batch of tomatoes, they just call up the farmer and the guy's out there and he brings the tomatoes in. Right? They don't have to come in from 1,500 miles away or whatever it is here. So that's a really important thing. One of the reasons that Europeans don't want it is because they've never had it. And they also have a much deeper uh, commitment to traditional food culture, which we somehow have, for obvious reasons, have lost. We spent 50 years eating chicken McNuggets, and here we are. I was joking with my students. I literally have been talking about GMO since like, 9.30 this morning. I said, you know, I grew up in New York in the 70s when lunch was two slices of Wonder Bread, a piece of bologna, Oscar Mayer bologna, and a slice of uh, what wasn't even called cheese. It was called an individually wrapped cheese food product. And that was lunch. And I said, and you know, what, what kind of flour went into making Wonder Bread? We got, this, is, this is like one of these reasons that I love being a professor. What kind of flour is used to make Wonder Bread? I said, if you, I said, just like a Zen master can see a drop of water and see the whole universe in the drop of water, like if you can see, take a slice of Wonder Bread, you can see all of American culture in that Wonder Bread. <laughs> so the flour that is used to make Wonder Bread is what's called uh, now, just, right, I'm just going to say this, and you can draw your own metaphorical conclusions, okay? It's bleached, right? It's whitened, and it is enriched. So bleached and enriched. And I said, what kind of people want bread that has had all the nutrients stripped out of it and then re-injected with some other thing and bread that is made to look like unrecognizably white? And I said, and I, I'm not even going to get into the whole racial thing. We could. I said, I'm ready to go there if you want, but let's just not go there for this second. And so some girl raised her hand and said, uh, I, read, I, I was talking in another class about how Wonder Bread to like 1970s or let's say 60s suburbanites, if you ate white bread, it meant that you weren't a country bumpkin because country bumpkins make brown bread. And white bread reveals to the world that you're eating something that is not that, right? So this is where the, the cultural history is so fascinating. Like you, you know, we all think, well, whole grain breads, brown bread, that's all I ever eat. But that's because we're over that fetish of trying to pretend that we're not like of the land. You know, this is like the whole Wendell Berry thing. Like you want to be, you want to remember that being of the land is actually a desirable thing, but we spent a lot of years running as fast as we could away from the land, away from working, right? The whole like total um, lack of, of uh, respect that your typical suburban college student has for people who work with their hands, like the, the dismissal of manual work as a cultural phenomenon is a real problem which is also built into this whole thing. So there's a lot, a lot to talk about here, for sure. And 
one of the great things about the book is that you take this journey across this country and out into the world, and we learn a lot about the research that's being done, and somehow or other, you end up back here in Maryland. And, um, you know, the, part of this conversation seems to be always about how we're going to feed the world. And it is, I think, the stalking horses, like you've, you've kind of said, that, uh, you know, about that the chemical or the, that these big corporations like to use. I've heard it, you know, I had dinner at Woodbury once with somebody who's a, you could say, a chicken farmer here in the state. And he looked up and said, oh, it's nice, but how are you going to feed the world this way? That was the first time I'd ever heard that. Yeah. And um, um, I, I don't know, I, it stuck with me. And I, I hear that more and more. Uh, as kind of this defense of a lot of what's, what's happening uh, around GMOs and around industrial ag. Um, but what I love about when you got back here to Maryland and you asked somebody here, a, a farmer in the state, like, do we need that? I think he's here, actually. Um, it, Drew, do you remember that when, when McKay asked you, like, do we need GMOs to feed the world? Do you remember your response? I said, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I love. And, I, you know, being from Maryland and coming across that at the end of the book, really, I, I don't know, that... that that made it for me, um, you know, and it kind of, you know, I was, I was skeptical or fearful, I guess you could say, of GMOs uh, before I read the book, and now, you know, the, the picture that you paint, and, and again, connecting it to this kind of horrific um, chemical-dependent agriculture is, is what really made it clear for me, but how do you see this going forward? I mean, there is some, you know, you do give voice to some folks who aren't on the, fully on the Monsanto kind of giant, you know, Midwestern farm thing that, that are trying to, to kind of, I guess, find a middle way? Well, I, I, I will let the farmers in the room speak for themselves, but I certainly spent some time interviewing farmers that were not uh, radically anti-GMO. They're like, you know, GMOs, let's remember, let's call them a, call GMO technology a tool. There is a use for that. It's like, I have a, a colleague named Doug Tallamy. Some of you may have read some of his work. Doug Tallamy is uh, an entomologist by training, and what he has become is the, the public face of a, a parallel shift here in uh, the pushing of native plants, the pushing of native plants, especially for like home gardeners. And the reason he got into native plants is because he was a bug guy first, and then he became a bird guy, because birds eat bugs, and he was like, why are the bird populations all around the mid-Atlantic crashing like crazy? <clears throat> and this is the same reason. It's the same reason. The landscape has changed. We no longer have bird habitat. In other words, there are no more native plants because everyone is obsessively, what? Planting lawns, right? Because suburbanites like their lawns. Lawns are about as ecologically useful as a parking lot, right? And what he says is when you wake up in the morning, you hear some bird songbird out in the middle of the, you know, the, in the tree outside your house at, in April or something, and it's singing at five o'clock in the morning. That bird has just landed from a 300-mile flight. It's coming up to us from Honduras, and now it's just landed in a tree next to your house, and it is starving. So what has it got to eat? And if you've got nothing but lawn, it's toast, right? That bird is not going to make it. Same thing is true of monarch butterflies. Why are monarch butterflies now at 4% of their typical populations? Is because we have eliminated their food source, which is what? Milkweed, right? They eat one thing, they eat milkweed. You spray Roundup across 300 million acres of crops, no more milkweed, the monarchs crash. Songbirds crash, right? The whole obsession with lawns is the problem. The reason I'm bringing this up is Doug Talmy, who is Mr. Native Plant, is like, you know what? 
If you've got, um, let me think of uh, an invasive plant, like oriental bittersweet. Let's say you've got an oriental bittersweet that is running up your tree and it's going to yank your tree down. And this thing, you keep cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. Every year it grows back and grows back and grows back. You know what? He says cut it and paint it with Roundup. Like take a, you know, a paintbrush and paint that quarter-sized cross-section of the oriental bittersweet and it'll be dead and you'll be done with the oriental. He's like, so this guy who's like Mr. Native Plant is not like psycho-anti-chemicals. He's like, the tool can be useful, but use the tool in like seriously moderate ways. As opposed to this idea of like, I just want to kill everything, so I'm going to spray everything. The Roundup thing is like, it's a, an incredible fetish that we've developed for this Roundup. Roundup, you know, I asked these kids, like, so wh why does your dad spray Roundup on his lawn every Sunday? I'm like, well, he doesn't like clover. I'm like, so like, what, let's talk about clover for a second. Like, what is clover? And why is clover so offensive to you as a lawn plant? It doesn't hurt your feet. <laughs> and you start looking at clover, ready? I'm sorry, I gotta do, I just gotta say this. So clover, right? So clover is something that, that glyphosate can kill, right? How do you convince homeowners that they should buy, uh, buy glyphosate or Roundup? Well, you have to convince them that clover is the enemy. Like in order to market the product, you've got to convince them that the enemy is worth spraying. So how do you convince a homeowner that clover is dangerous? You can actually go back and look at advertisements from the 60s that'll say things like, in a very dark kind of way, like, are your children getting stung by bees? If so, we have a solution. The reason you're getting bees is because the bees are attracted to clover. By getting rid of the clover, you get rid of the bees, and then your little babies can play out there on the suburban lawn and not get stung. So you spray with, with you know, some broadleaf herbicide. kills all the clover. And then lo and behold, your soil and your lawn becomes nitrogen deficient because clover is a nitrogen fixer. So the companies say, is your lawn nitrogen deficient? Well, guess what? We've got synthetic fertilizer. We can sell it to you. So instead of buying zero products, you have to buy two. And we then lose all our bees. So, you know, these things all have these snowballing unintended consequences, but it all comes back to this weird thing that we have this capacity to build these fetishes for things like monoculture grass, monoculture crops, whatever it is. We all want stuff to be uniform, predictable, the same, and the consequences are legion. So I want to just, I think we're going to open it up here in a second, but it, it, I think you got to, got to a really interesting moment, which is like this is, we're basically 20 years into this experiment, right? With starting with the flavor saver tomato, 1996. Um, and I, and I kind of want to ask you before we, you know, get, expand this conversation, like, how do you feel about that? You know, the, the, this idea of unintended consequences and all the things that we see that we've introduced, say, into the Chesapeake Bay, for example, with invasives or whatever. Here we are 20 years into this experiment, um, you know, uh, FDA or EPA says it's it's we're it's pretty safe. It's largely safe. FDA says that the food is safe, right? Um, how do you feel about where we're headed with this? Well, at the risk of, of uh, expressing overt gratitude for people in the room, I, like I say again, I think this is the solution. And and I'll, I'll put it in because I'm a professor. I get to speak metaphysically. You guys get to, the farmers can speak practically. Metaphysically, what I think is starting to happen, as you see in this room, and, and hopefully could scale up, and I think is actually the solution, is for people to become, uh, the language is tricky here, but I'm gonna say it anyway, like native to their place. 
Like, I think that people in Maryland should become really invested in a very deep metaphysical as well as practical way in being in the mid-Atlantic. Like, if you're going to live here, eat here. You know what they used to say in the 60s, eat your view? Like, eat the food in the season, in the place where it's grown. Also, get to know the trees where you are. Like, if you're in a, if I blindfolded you and put you in a forest in Maryland, you should be able to open your eyes and notice that this is not Northern California. You know what? This is not Louisiana. This is the mid-Atlantic, right? So the reason the language is tricky is I don't want to like suggest that we should become indigenous. Like, that's not, that's complicated. But what I think we need to do is become massively more grounded and placed where we are. And then the foods, everything else takes care of itself. Like once you're in your place, then it becomes logical that you eat food grown by a local person, cooked by a local person. I mean, sure, if you want to have chocolate or coffee, really farmers always say, yeah, I want local, you know, I'll give you the whole local thing, but I got to have my chocolate and I got to have my coffee, they always say, right? And maybe sugar, those three things. Everything else I'll grow myself. But eat locally, eat seasonally, get the local economy. You know how it works. The snowball goes the other way. It's like you boost the local economy. You value actual work. You value the landscape. You disvalue the industrial takeover of everything. That's the antidote to me is like super reinvestment in every way in the local thing. And everything else will fall right into place. That's, that's where I'm putting my bet anyway. I am too, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> How about some questions from our? Um, so does, does your book touch at all about the effect of GMOs and the loss of genetic diversity in crops and kind of that whole sterility tied up in GMO seed production now? Big time, yeah. In fact, I, I, I can't quote it from the top of my head, but there's there are Paragraph, like there are not a whole lot of numbers in this book, but there are a couple of paragraphs that are chock full of numbers, like the, the reduction in the number of species of apples, for example. And they, again, not to keep beating this horse, but it's all because of the same reason. Uh, you know, who's the biggest buyer of apples in the United States? McDonald's, right? McDonald's wants a certain kind of apple. So when McDonald's puts in an order for apples, the apple farmers are going to grow to meet the market. So then they all start growing the same kind of apple that McDonald's wants. So that's the reason for the reduction in the genetic diversity is because of industrial demand for it. The net result is we now have, I forget what the number is, like 90% fewer kinds of apples being grown. And that thing is true across the spectrum in, in, in the vegetable aisle. Like it's, it's actually was shocking to me to look at the numbers. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the graph of the I'm not even talking like in an ecological sense. I'm talking about in the actual variety of food, human food that is out there has just crashed because everything has become so like uniformly condensed to fit the industrial production model. So yeah, there's, there's a quite a bit about that. And I'll just say we were talking earlier, there's a chapter in here about a place in Kansas, some of you may have heard of called the Land Institute. And I spent quite a bit of time and have become good friends with a guy named Wes Jackson, who is quite a well-known agricultural researcher. I think there's Nobel Prize winning uh, research going on in his, his station out there. He's also, for you literary people, he's one of uh, Wendell Berry's best friends. Anyway, Wes Jackson is trying to create uh, what is called perennial polyculture. 
this is actually a really important to think, thing to think about. He's like, you can grow all the organic vegetables in the world, but 70% of the human diet is grain. And if you, if you really want to fix the world's food problem, you've got to deal with the grain. So 70% of, of the food is grain, 70% of the water goes to grow grain, 70% of the petrochemicals goes to grow grain. You've got to fix the grain problem if you really want. You know, he's, his whole thing is climate change is being largely driven by industrial ag. So we've got to fix the grain problem. Monoculture is clearly not working. So perennial polyculture means developing a, the, the plant that he is most famous for now is something known as Kernza, which is a, he's not using GMOs. He's using traditional breeding. But it's a grain-producing plant that has it's perennial. It comes back year after year. And it has, a, instead of a root system like a, a wheat plant of a couple of feet, its root system is like 12 feet deep and massive. Like Wes Jackson, he's like an 80-year-old guy. He goes on these public speaking things. And he holds up his Kernza plant. And I always joke, it looks like Rapunzel. It's like, here's the wheat thing. And then the hair, like the root system coming down, is like 12 feet long and wide. So you have, if you had you know, 100 million acres of that, you wouldn't be soaking up all the fresh water. You wouldn't need to spray it. And then you do polyculture where you've got things shading out the weeds and things resisting the insects. And this is the whole idea. This is like, like as revolu he, this is a guy who says that annual monoculture was a 10,000-year experiment that has failed. Like we, this is a 10,000-year project that human beings have been doing. And it's been a loser since day one. And we're only now beginning to realize that we've got to farm the way the prairie functions, which is many crops growing on top of each other. And, and he's, this is like, like if it works, it's going to be a real, you know, a game-changing kind of idea. Great point, Peter, that, you know, we've lost our biodiversity in um, wheat and apples and, and even our pastures, you know, that a lot of pastures look like golf courses. I know my pasture doesn't, and it's a lot of biodiversity. Clover's my friend, all those weeds, uh, chickweed and everything. We love that for our hogs. But um, I've been working also in the health field for 32 years, and I think this is a big point to make about GMOs, is what it's, it's making people obese. It's breeding autoimmune diseases. Uh, it's not feeding the world, it's making the world sick. It's making the, well, the people that eat these GMOs that are covered with uh, pesticides and herbicides um, sick. And I think that's an important point of this GMO error we're in. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because as I, one of the very first sentences in the book, the first sentence originally in the book was the uh, fuck that quote of Drew, but that, my editor didn't want that to be the first. Uh, the, one of the first sentences in the book is this, this idea that when the topic of GMOs comes up, the first question and almost the only question that anybody wants to ask is, are they safe? And my feeling, as you've just articulated, is that's, like, that's a, a superficial question. Because it may be, as the you know, industry loves to say, that Billions and billions and billions of meals have been consumed that were made with GMOs. And as far as we know, nobody got sick. That's what they will say over and over and over again. But the reason that's disingenuous, first of all, is that the long-term studies are not long enough to actually prove that. Second, who knows exactly what of the many GI ailments that people do present with are, in fact, caused by this. So there are people, for example, that will say, 
well, point three, GMOs are designed to be sprayed with chemicals. So whether it's the GMO that makes you sick or it's the Roundup that makes you sick is kind of irrelevant if the package always comes together. So there are people that say things, for example, that you know, gluten intolerance or um, celiac, which people have been saying for years is like an, you know, uh, uh, an, um, an allergy to a, a wheat protein, may in fact be your body rejecting the herbicide. You know, wheat, this is, is news to a lot of people, wheat is not GMO, right? Wheat is not GMO. But wheat farmers routinely spray wheat right before harvest with glyphosate to dry it out. So right before it gets harvested, it gets sprayed with glyphosate to the tune of something like whatever it is, 85 million acres or something. That's not a GMO problem, but it's an industrial ag problem. So when people say that GMOs are not unhealthy, that's a disingenuous kind of like totally misleading and fake argument because it's all right. So the GMO is not a problem, but it's still making you know GMO canola oil to make chicken nuggets, which are all fed GMO soybeans, and the soy the chicken McNuggets are not doing anybody any favors. Health wise. Health wise. Like during the medieval period, that was a thing to have a, the poor people were eating the, the natural grains and the rich people were eating the white processed grains. And I can't believe it's still a thing in the 50,000 years later. But my comment, what first question is, have you ever read this book called The 50s? It's by David Halberstam. It's uh, all yes, about the development of the suburbs and all the things you're talking about. And the other one, because you have corn on the front, is this? Um, you have corn on the front there, and I'm thinking about the development, the intended consequences of putting fructose corn syrup in everything from baby formula forward and the, and the health reasons from that and what GMOs, how GMOs affect that. Too, or how did it come about that, that there was corn, corn syrup put in everything? Well, I, I'm going to just take a logical guess, which is that the United States is not an ideal climate to grow sugar, except if you're in Florida. So what you, what America, I mean, look, this is, this is a well-known phenomenon. What do human beings gravitate to? Salt, fat, sugar, right? You can't resist. Salt, fat, and sugar is like heroin for the human body, right? Everybody needs it. They crave it. In, in the natural world, it comes in very short supply. People love I mean, pre-industry, you would eat fruit with a passion in the summer because it had sugar. It was a great source of sugar. In the winter, not so much sugar out there. Salt, fat, and sugar. Salt, fat, and sugar are the things that these industrial food companies have figured out a way to inject into basically everything that you eat. So now, you go into 7-Eleven 24 hours a day, you get as much salt, fat, and sugar as you could possibly want, right? Because it's engineered to hit your taste buds exactly that way. You have these receptors that gravitate to that. Salt, fat, and sugar, right? Every fast food meal, you walk into the restaurant, first thing you get, salty French fries. What does that do, right? You know this. Cranks up your taste buds, man. I'm starving, now I got salt, right? Then what do you do? Deliver them some fat, big piece of meat. How do you want to end it? Lots of sugar at the end. It makes you walk out feeling happy, right? Everybody, I mean, nursing babies, right? What do they call that, the hind milk? You get the fat at the end, sugar at the end, and you walk out all gooey and happy. That's the way we're designed, right? I mean, he knows more about this than anybody. These are the things you play with, right? This is the way the taste buds work. But when you mass deliver this stuff, what happens is people can't stop. 
You can't stop eating salt, you can't stop eating fat, and you can't stop eating sugar. So what happens to the national waistline? What do they say? Like by 2050, I just read this today, that 40% of all Americans are going to be diabetic by 2050. Right? right now, in the poorest states like Mississippi, Alabama, already it's like 35%, 40% of people are diabetic and obese. Why is that? It's not because people are stupid. It's because that's what the system is feeding them. That's why this is like a structural shift. This is a massive public policy, land use, philosophical, economic. I mean, everything goes into this thing. This is a beast. One of the issues that we have to figure out how to deal with is the fact that in the more agrarian society that we had you know, before World War II, people were spending, I think, 25 or 30 percent of their income on food. And I think at this point, I, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but I, it's substantially less. I think it's about 10 percent. So I, I don't know how we we get back to that, but if, if so now we spend 10% on food, but we spend 20% on healthcare because of diabetes and all the other things that you were mentioning. Um, and it, it, in a way, it's kind of like climate change because it's a long-term issue. Uh, and people in their lifespan, you know, on a short-term basis, they want the salt, fat, and sugar. So today, um, I don't know how that gets solved, but I, I just thought I'd bring it up and see what you had to say about it. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I have to say that uh, Drew Norman was one of the first people that got me thinking about this. What you say is exactly right. We used to spend a lot of our per capita income on food. Now, the United States as a culture spends less per capita on food than almost any other country in the world. Now spend 10% of our income on food and 20% of it on our phones or whatever it is, right? I mean, this is again like the Zen master and the drop of water. So how do you spend your money, right? If you're not spending on food, what is it exactly that you're spending your money on? I mean, I think that's a really legitimate question. So, okay, you want cheap, what do, we, what do Americans, what's the food culture in the United States? What, how do we want our food? We want it fast and we want it cheap and that's all we care about. Right? Can you imagine like going into like Florence and saying to an Italian like, "How do you want your food? Fast and cheap." Right? No, that would like never come out of their mouth. Right? What they want is slow and homemade and preferably with a you know a bottle of Chiani at lunchtime. You know. So like we spend money, we spend a lot of money. We just don't spend it on food. So you get what you pay for in every way, not just in, in your body and your nutrition and all that, but you get what you pay for in terms of your landscape and your politics. Right? This is all, it's a really important point. But when people say, oh, organic food is too expensive, compared to what? Compared to what? I mean, I get, I get, first of all, let me start to put a little caveat. I get that, you know, the, the, you've heard this a million times, the big argument against organic food is poor people can't afford it. True. Why is that? Like, why is it that the poor people can't afford it? Why is organic food more expensive than crappy industrial conventional food? Well, there are deep economic structures behind that reason, right? They, poor people should have organic food, so should everybody else, but not the way these, econ these economies of scale are working right now. So 
I'm not saying it's easy, it's complicated, but it's, it's really worth like wrestling with and not having simple answers for. Okay. Um, I just want to ask the people in the room if, if they're aware that um, in the 80s, some very forward-thinking county commissioners in Montgomery County, which is just west of Washington, D.C., uh, set aside almost 100,000 acres of land for primary uh, land use, uh, agricultural land use. And um, it's called the Montgomery County Agricultural Preserve. And uh, a lot of people don't even know it's there. I just want to inform people that it's there and there are farmers out there. Um, there's a lot of industrial farming out there, but there's a lot of uh, small farmers out there trying to bring back, um, you know, heritage crops and organic crops and a lot of emerging farmers markets. We have a lot of community agricultural stuff going on out there. So we just need to spread the word about out there. It's the Montgomery Country, the, the Montgomery uh, County Agricultural Reserve. And there's a nonprofit called the Montgomery Countryside Alliance that exists to protect it because there's always the wolf at the door. They want to build a second Potomac Crossing. They're always wanting to develop. So um, if you're interested in preserving the uh, uh, agricultural land outside of a major uh, city urban area much in the european style we have it here we have it just right here nearby we, we live in it in fact um another thing i wanted to say was do you dress in your book i haven't read it yet but um this is all complicated by the fact that organizations such as the american heart association and your 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 family doctor is going to tell you that you need to eat so many servings of whole whole grains per day and you need to be eating uh, canola canola oil and um and discouraging the the consumption of animal fats and this sort of thing that complicates this whole thing because people think they're eating healthy they, you know, they go to the bread aisle in the grocery store and buy all this stuff that says whole grain and all that. And uh, so there's a huge uh, information gap in terms of this. It's like it seems like a really small segment of the population that understands what's going on with the wheat and the um, the the fat situation and all that. So there's things I wanted to say. Well, maybe other people have different experiences, but uh, yeah. I have a really good personal physician and he has never once asked me what I eat like it, this is just not part of medical training in this country I would be curious I don't know if, if any of the farmers would care to venture a guess but I, I did interview somebody who said you know if you take Chicago and you take the farms around Chicago that are currently growing industrial crops he is of the opinion that the farms around Chicago could feed Chicago and I wonder if, if there's anybody in the room that has any idea about the scale. Like, what is it? This is a question I get asked all the time. I've never heard a, a really satisfying answer. But what would it mean again to have a, an honest-to-God local food economy that actually fed local people and 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 uh, withdrew from the global system? Now, it obviously, would require radical differences. Like, you actually wouldn't get tomatoes in February. But would it actually, remember, don't forget, 70% of your calories comes from grain. Like, would it be possible to feed Maryland from Maryland farms? I mean, theoretically, it used to happen. Now, it's, I've thought about that, and I think the math doesn't quite support it. We can get very close. 
Um, we also have Pennsylvania as a backup. Um, it's part of our watershed. It's part of the way we think about our food shed. Um, I think the basic math is that we need about a half acre per person. We've got about 6 million people in Maryland. Um, we've got about 2 million acres of, of kind of farmland. A million or so is actively farmed. Almost 96% of that is in commodities. Um, if we got, got it right on some level, uh, we could feed a lot of our people, but we couldn't feed all of us. And we'd have to, we'd have to lean on PA a little bit. But I, th I think we can do so much more. I mean, Woodbury and everything that we do is kind of based on that thought, is like how much can we possibly do? And we can do a hell of a lot more than just go grow corn and soy to feed chickens uh, here in this state. If yeah, you know, so. my... I, and I'm not a farmer, but I, I've thought about this. It's a very... That's a really well-articulated point. I, a lot of my students say things like, uh, you know, I, I love... Big Macs, and there's just no way in hell I'm ever going to become a vegetarian. And I say, you know, there is actually a little middle ground there. Like these people, you know, what do they say? Like a typical college student eats like a McDonald's hamburger like two meals a day. You know, and you say like, how about like one meal a day? Would that be acceptable? Or like maybe one fewer day a week? Like in other words, if you can't feed every single person in Maryland with Maryland farm-grown food, that doesn't mean you shouldn't like be taking like 25 steps in that direction. So there's this this thing that you know people what do they call it? Um, you know, dualistic thinking. It's either this or it's the opposite extreme. Those are not the only two points of view. Like we should be creating markets like crazy for local produce and local grain and see what happens. Just walk in that direction. Uh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm on insulin. I take, uh, I have an autoimmune disease, ulcerative colitis. I'm allergic to corn. I guess maybe I'm allergic to GMO corn. What, when you expose this, how do you offer hope to those who are suffering from the community? You know, I, this is where I, I really have to defer to, in this case, probably scientists in the room. I, I, I've now written two books about the, inf the negative influence of industrial production on human and environmental health. One, petrochemicals and consumer products, and one, food. And the problem with this is that, and the, this is the reason that industry survives the way it does, is it is virtually impossible, with the exception of cigarettes and asbestos, you know, and not too many other things, to say this cancer was caused by that thing, right? You've probably had a very hard time convincing anybody that corn is the cause of all your problems. Like maybe you have an allergy, whatever you have, but who knows? And in a court, you can't prove causation. You can prove correlation. Everybody knows that. You know, you can say flame retardants cause breast cancer, but you can't say the flame retardants in your mattress cause your mother's breast cancer. You can't do that. You can say research says this causes that in the general population, but no one can take a company to court and say this caused that. So. Then the question is like, how do you make recommendations? If you can't prove this causes that, you can't tell somebody, stop do eating that and you'll be fine. Because who knows? And because not only GMOs, but these pesticides and herbicides and everything else is all stitched into everything else, you're getting it all over the place all the time. But you're also getting, you know, you're getting uh, uh, endocrine disruptors in your, in your uh, shampoo and you're getting, you know, stuff blown out of your dryer sheets when you put the thing in the dryer. And, you know, you take your shirt to the dry cleaner and you're getting that stuff and your Teflon pans and your cosmetic, I mean, everything 
right? They talk about what they call the barrel theory. Everyone's got a barrel. Your body's a barrel, and it's filling up and filling up and filling up. And sometimes people flip over, and they get cancer. They get, you know, reproductive problems, whatever they get. And then they can't turn around and say, that's what caused it, because you're getting it all day long. So I have no simple answer. I just know that this is like what has happened. And the best thing I can think to do is simply try to understand it, see it clearly, and then try to walk it back somehow. So I, I wish I had a better answer, but it's a, it's a pisser, really. So yeah, let's try to, uh, okay. Eat better food like at his place. And we can say that we're gonna do that uh, now because um, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you, McKay Jenkins, for uh, <laughs> Thanks again for joining us tonight for our conversation at Artifact Coffee. With special thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Donnie Carlo for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to them for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series.